Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Then next five words, you are not your own. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. As Ken mentioned earlier, this is Pentecost Sunday. This is the day in which we look back and we celebrate and we thank God because Pentecost Sunday was the day the church was birthed. It's the day when God's Spirit not only dwelt among His people, but came to dwell in His people. And that phrase, you are not your own, is one that we, especially as Americans, we struggle with. We struggle with this phrase, you are not your own. We love to have ownership of ourselves, but it's in these moments we must come to realize that we are bankrupt, all but the grace of God and his power in our life. We find ourselves in Haggai uh, chapter 2 today. And the book of Haggai is a book that points us toward Christ, who is the true temple, but also that reality that we are in Christ. His spirit dwells in us. And therefore, we are also a temple of the Holy Spirit, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians. Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 15, God corrects the people, and he wants them to slow down and think for just a moment about the trajectory of their lives and how they're living their lives apart from him. We got into chapter 2 last week, where God encourages the people to stay loyal to him, even though they're discouraged. We all go through those times. And then today in Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 19, we're going to see God's calling on his people to stay humble. And so if you have a Bible, please turn to the book of Haggai. You can go to Matthew and go back about three books and you'll be there. And as we prepare our hearts, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this moment, for your presence in this place. It is so powerful. And now we ask that you would speak to us. As we open your word, we are very aware that we cannot grasp what it is that you have for us this morning on our own, and we acknowledge that. And so, Lord, we need your spirit to speak. Would you do so? Your servants are listening. Lord, we love you, and we thank you, and we thank you for loving us. I pray this in Jesus' good and powerful name. And everybody said... We pick up the story, the prophecies of Haggai. This is the third one now. He's given two previous ones. He gave one in our calendar on August 29th, 520 B.C. He gave another one on October 17th, 520 B.C. And now we come to December 18th, which is, that's what it reads in verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, that's in the Jewish calendar, our calendar is December 18th, 520 B.C., in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. So once again, God speaks. The people are rebuilding his temple as he has told them to do. After they returned from exile, Babylonian exile, they began this project about 15 years ago. And then they stopped and they went about building their own lives. And now God is speaking to them through the prophet Haggai, also Zechariah. God is speaking to them, and about four months earlier, they began work. God began to stir the people, and they began to respond, and they began to build the temple again. And so we pick it up now in December in our calendar, and God has spoken once more. And then in verse 11, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priest about the law. So here, what God is speaking is not just to Zerubbabel or just to the people. It is specifically to the priest. Now, this is important because of Le Leviticus 10, verses 10 and 11. Leviticus 10, verses 10 and 11 says that the function of the priest was threefold. 
In Leviticus 10, verse 10 and 11, it says, You, being the priest, are to distinguish between what is holy and what is common, between what is unclean and between what is clean, in verse 11, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them. So right there, you see the calling of a priest. Their main function was to determine what is holy and what is common, what is unclean, what is clean, and to teach the people. Now you may say, what do all those words mean? Holy, common, unclean, clean. The word holy means it is something that exists in close proximity to God. It means to exist in close proximity to God, who is the Holy One, and that holiness is radiating on us, in us, and through us. The word common means those things that are distant from God. Those things that are distant from God. The word unclean means those things that are not acceptable in God's presence. And those things that are clean are those things that are acceptable in God's presence. So the words are not interchangeable necessarily. They do not necessarily mean the same. So the priests were to pronounce things that, yes, this is what it looks like. This is what it is to exist in close proximity to God. These are the things that are distant from God, things, people, places, that kind of thing. And then also things that are unclean are not acceptable in God's presence, and those things that are clean are acceptable in God's presence. I'll say more about that in just a little bit. So right here, God, through Haggai, addresses the priest, and he has two questions for them, very interesting questions. Verse 12. The first question is, if someone carries holy meat, meaning meat that has been consecrated, holy meat, in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold, meaning the cloth that the meat is being carried in, the cloth touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, the question is, does it become holy? Holy meat wrapped in a garment, the garment touches something, does that something become holy? The answer is no. The priest answered and said no, and that answer is correct. The question there is, can holiness be transmitted twice? That's the question at its core. Can it be twice transmitted? And the answer is no. Okay, verse 13. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean, a little different category, who is unclean by contact with a dead body, touches any of these, any of these things I mentioned, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. The answer is yes, and that answer is correct. So the first question is, can holiness be transmitted twice? The answer is no. Second question is, can uncleanness, by touching a dead body, be transmitted twice? And the answer is Yes. And we see this. Again, it's a question about the law. We see this in the Levitical law. Like high priest and priest are not to touch a dead body um, or they become unclean. Leviticus 21.1, also verse 11. A Nazarite is not to do this. Number 6, 6 through 8. Um, I mean, also anybody who's part of the people of Israel, uh, it's the same thing applies to them. Numbers 19, 11 through 13. And if anything or anyone touches something that is unclean, they themselves become unclean. Numbers 19.22. And so this is a part of what the priest would know. Now, the question is, why these questions? Why are they asking these questions about holiness, about uncleanness? What does all of this mean? There's two major points, I think, that God is beginning to make here. We just need to understand the backstory. And that is, number one, that uncleanness, he wants them to know, 
uncleanness is contagious. It is contagious. You can transmit it. I mean, if you don't believe me, you just put on a white shirt, let me rub my hand in dirt and mud and touch you, right? I mean, this is common sense. Uncleanness is contagious. We all know this. In the natural world, we know this. Now, spiritually speaking, this is also the case because uncleanness, along with sin, uncleanness resonates with our fallen nature. It resonates with us as fallen people. And not only that, we feed off of things that are unclean and even things that are sinful. That's why negative talk travels faster than positive talk. And what God is saying here is to the people is you need to understand you do not naturally, we as people, them as people, we do not naturally draw near to God. And we transmit uncleanness to each other and to others. And I mean, this, and again, we all know this. Like, you don't have to teach your children, you know, how to move away from God, right? Like, I don't know any parents who's ever sat down with their kids and say, okay, kids, I want to be really honest with you, so I'm going to teach you all the things about the world. Let me give you 10 ways you can walk away from God, right? Like, nobody does that. You don't have to do that because it's part of our nature, and so is uncleanness. So the second thing that he's saying, number one is that uncleanness is contagious. The second thing he's saying is that holiness must be directly pursued because it is not our natural state or nature. It is not our natural state or nature. Holiness is God's natural state and nature, not ours. Not ours because sin entered the world. And so he's getting at here, talking to the priest, these two big ideas uncleanness is contagious we transmit it we give it away we communicate it to others but holiness must be directly pursued by the people now you may say why these categories of unclean and clean why unclean clean what does all that mean you know in a lot of ways our modern western minds we just think this is ludicrous i mean we read things like this and we just go that makes no sense whatsoever things would be clean or unclean and you know god's holy but yeah but that doesn't make any sense and one of the reasons why that doesn't make any sense to us is because culturally we culturally look at ourselves as inherently good we do i mean we even have language for this right it's like you know i'm basically a good person or deep down inside they're a good person you know, we use this language, and when we convince ourselves enough that I'm basically a good person, we distort not only who we are, we distort who God is in his holiness, complete, perfect holiness, his otherness. And so if I'm basically good, why wouldn't God just give me, you know, what I want? I mean, why not? I'm good, basically good. Deep down in here somewhere, right? And so God surely would just give me, and this plays out in so many different ways, and we, what we've done is, is we've, we've misunderstood who we are as people, who we are as sinners, and who God is as holy. So, and that's important to understand clean and unclean. So when God sets his people free from Egypt, he gives them laws. There's three categories of laws. Civil laws, those are the laws that regulate society. Those were for Israel. They regulated their society, do's and don'ts of society, just like we have laws in our country today, right? Then there are moral laws. These think the Ten Commandments. These are things that help the people live a moral life, live that out morally. 
And then there are ceremonial laws. These are the laws that govern life in the temple. These are the laws that have to do with what is clean and what is unclean. And this is the basic category that we're looking at in these two questions that God is asking the priest through Haggai. Now, let me say this. There's nothing inherently wrong with being in a state of being unclean. There's nothing inherently wrong about that. What is not right is to enter into God's presence when you are in a state of being unclean. You with me there? There's nothing inherently wrong about being in a state of being unclean. You can go back and give you examples of that. But what you don't want to do is to come in close proximity with God when you are in that state of being unclean. The word holy means that you are consecrated and set apart for a sacred work as a result of your close proximity with God. As a result of God has drawn near to you, you have drawn near to God. Because of that proximity, that's what holiness gets at. See, a lot of times when we hear the word holiness, we think the word perfection, right? Oh, you're holier than thou, meaning you think you're perfect. All right, holiness is about close proximity to God. Perfection is a byproduct of holiness, of proximity. You with me there? So I become more like Christ. I become more like God. I become more perfect, right? Become, I'm going on toward becoming like God the closer I get to him. The goal is holiness, being in close proximity to God. The goal is not moral perfection. That's the byproduct of it. And so that's very important in understanding this word clean or unclean. So uncleanness, biblically, is I'm not prepared to come in close proximity to God. It's that simple. I want to be holy, meaning I want to live in close proximity to God, which means I need to be in a state of being clean so that I can enter into his presence. That's what that means. We're going to talk more about that when we hit Leviticus a little later in the summer. So with that background, pick up verse 14. After asking these two questions, it says, Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people. Just as the priests have answered about this uncleanness question and holiness question, he says, So it is with this people. Notice he uses this language, this people, and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. God's language here, this people, this nation, this is the type of language he would use for a foreign nation, not his people. He didn't say, so it is with my people. He said, this people. What he's communicating is that there's distance between the people and him right now. He says, as it is with me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. What they are offering me is unclean. Right here, what God says to the people is that there is uncleanness right now, meaning you are not, my people are not prepared, not prepared to enter into my presence. Yes, they're rebuilding the temple. Yes, they're preparing to worship God. But he's letting them know they're not ready yet. They're doing all the building stuff right, but there's some heart stuff that has to be done as well. And right here we see the grace and mercy of God. Well, while he's being very honest about their reality, this is the state where they are right now. He's being very honest about that. He is about to bless them. He is preparing them for something. And so he's giving them warning and defining their reality as you're not ready for it yet, but I want you to be. So look at verses 15 through 17. It says, and uh, now then consider, he wants them to slow down and think about, we've seen this word before, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, meaning before you started rebuilding, how did you fare? He wants them to think. 
What was life like before you started building? Remember, they came back from exile. They started rebuilding the temple. That was 15 years ago. They stopped. They started building their own lives. And now God wants them to think about that. How did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all your, uh, all your products of your, of your toll with blight and with mildew and with hail. That's echoes of Amos 9. And yet you did not turn to me. You didn't turn to me. That's the key. What God is saying to his people is very important right here. He says, I want you to stay humble about the past 15 years. I delivered you from exile. You came back. You started building the foundation and you stopped and you started building your own life. And he says, I want you to stay humble about what I'm about to do, what I'm about to tell you. What he's saying to the people is make sure that you do not turn the past 15 years into your victory because you did not pursue me. You did not turn to me. Some of your translations say return to me. The word means non-existent. That phrase there, you see, God was non-existent to them during that time. When they stopped building, they started building their own lives without him. And God is saying to the people, I want you to stay humble about what's happened the past 15 years because this was not your doing, it was my doing. You did not pursue me, I pursued you. And then here's what he says in verse 18 and 19. Consider, he used the word consider again. We saw it in chapter one. I want you to slow down and think about. From this day onward, the 24th day of the ninth month, again, December 18th, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid 15 years ago, consider, he says, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive oil have yielded nothing. Yielded nothing. The first thing he says, I want you to stay humble about your recent past. The second thing he says is I want you to stay humble in the present. Do not fall into the trap that, that you, what I'm about to say to you, he's about to say something very important, that you earn this in some way. One of the greatest traps in life is we think we bless ourselves or we think we have blessings because of what we have done. He says, God says, I want you to slow down here because there is a reality of living life without me, which you tried over the past 15 years, and there's a reality of living life with me. And I don't want you to make the same mistake twice. And then here comes the line, verse 19. Verse 19, the very end of it. But from this day on, I will bless you. What God says is from this day on, even though your temptation is pride, even though your temptation is for you to think that, that you're the one who blesses you, from this day on, there's gonna be a different trajectory that we are going into in history. It involves a blessing. The question is, what does the word blessing mean? If I were to go around the room I mean, we would have a thousand different opinions of what blessing means, right? Here he's pointing to a very important blessing. It's a blessing that's going to take place. It's going to come from God's people, the people of Israel, who are to be a light to the nations. Their whole vocation in life was to bring the Messiah into the world. And the blessing, the ultimate blessing for the whole world through Israel is going to be Jesus. He is the blessing that's going to come. And God is saying to these people, even though they've been trying to build their lives without him, he goes, no, 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 I'm going to reorient your lives and I want you to live life with me and for me and through you is going to come the Messiah. Now, you may be sitting there going, why are we talking about temples and things like that? You know, we're a New Testament church, you know, all that good stuff. Why are we even looking at this? Solomon built his temple in 960 B.C. 
If you back up further than that, let's back up just a little bit like to the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created everything good. And he created this place where he could dwell with his people. And then God tells our first parents, Adam and Eve, he says, you just need to know that sin leads to death because sin separates. And if I am the author of life and we separate from the author of life, then ultimately that's going to result in death. That's just naturally how sin works. And he told our first parents that. And of course they sin. And even though they sin, God is so good and gracious. God established this people. He was working through human history. He established this people known as Israel. They would be his people. They're the weakest of all the nations, and he chose them among all the nations. And then through them, we see them go off into captivity into Egypt. God delivers them from that captivity, this people, his people. Then he gives them the tabernacle, this mobile temple, right? As they're on their way to the promised land, he takes them into the promised land, and there Solomon builds his temple in all of its glory, and there are sacrifices day after day after day after day after year after year after year. Why? Again, modern thinkers, you and I, we look at this and we go, why in the world is God requiring to kill an animal? Think about it. What God is doing is imprinting on the minds of his people and a testimony to the whole world that it takes an innocent, perfect animal to atone for sin for one year. Just one year. That's what at atonement, at one meant, bring back together. That's the cycle of our lives. We separate from God, we come back together with God. We separate from God, we come back together from God. It's the cycle throughout all of human history. And over and over they would give sacrifices, imprinting on their mind that it takes an innocent, perfect animal to atone for one year. One year. Imagine being the person carrying the animal into the temple. You ever held an animal? I used to have a ferret. <laughs> Smelly things. I gladly sacrifice him. Anyway. Uh, too much, I know. All right. But think about it. Carrying the animal in, knowing this animal's about to die. Why? Because of my sin. My sin. The animal that you've been raising. Imagine walking in with your family. Daddy, why are we carrying that animal in? What are we going to do with it? And you have to explain it. We'll sacrifice the animal. Why? Well, son, well, daughter, because of my sin. Over and over, that's being imprinted on their minds. Over and over, the world is watching this take place. Not to appease a God, no, because of their sin. And they do it as a testimony and a witness to the world. And then Galatians 4, 4, at just the right time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive something, that we might receive adoption to sonship. It's Galatians 4, 4. At just the right time, God sent another sacrifice. Now, before you think I'm making a huge leap here, go to Hebrews 10. It tells us this. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 1. I just want to read from Scripture to you, because that's what I believe. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, 
It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Notice that. Make perfect those who draw near. Draw near to a holy God. Proximity is holiness. Perfection is a byproduct. Verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. You see what God is doing? He's imprinting on the hearts and minds of the people sin, sin, your sin, your sin, your sin, my sin. Verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, meaning forever. Verse 5, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings have, uh, ha you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me, quoting the Old Testament. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings, you take no pleasure. Again, quoting the Old Testament. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. He's quoting the Old Testament there. This is what it was all about from the beginning. Verse 8, when he said above, you neither desire nor take in pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Verse 9, then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first order to establish the second. The first order, the first order of the temple was to point toward the ultimate fulfillment in Christ, which is the second. Verse 10. And by that, will we have, uh, by that, will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all? Verse 11, and every priest stands daily in service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away the sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he accomplished that, and he sat down at the right hand of God. You see what's being talked about, the ultimate blessing of Haggai 2.19 is found in Jesus. Because once and for all, the sin issue is solved, not just for a year, but for eternity, for eternity. That's what we see here. I want to give you three quick points of application Three points of application from this word from God through Haggai to the people, I think, to us. And they all connect to this major theme of humility. Number one is that we rewrite our history and make ourselves the hero so many times. We rewrite our history. We look back into our past and we make ourselves the hero so many times. And we come to that place in life where we all of a sudden feel enlightened or something. And what it really does when we make ourselves the hero, we just become self-righteous. And we forget that Jesus is the only hero. We forget that without him intervening in our lives throughout time and space that bled us to this moment today, without him intervening, we would not even be here. There's so many times we look back in the past and we're the hero. Number two is that we convince ourselves that we have life under control. And what I mean by have life under control, I'm talking about religious life. We convince ourselves as Christians that we have mastered what it means to be godly. 
We've ordered our life in a certain way in which we kind of have a handle on and a grip on what a truly godly life looks like. And then what we do because of pride, not humility, because of pride, we look at other brothers and sisters in Christ and we look down on them because they don't live their lives the way we do. This was certainly going on among the people as different factions were beginning to develop. And then we see that play out with Pharisees, Sadducees, and all these other, the Essenes, all these other people or groups within the people of Israel that began to emerge in the coming years. And we do the same. We look back into our history, we make ourselves the hero, and that creates self-righteousness. And then, and then we convince ourselves that we've got religious life under control. You know, you're never called to master religion. Your calling is to be mastered by the master. Those are two different things. Not master religion, be mastered by the master. Point number three is that we forget that it is the Lord who blesses us. I can make that point of every sermon. It is a theme of Haggai to the core, that it is the Lord who blesses us. Again, that's why God is telling the people, stay humble. Don't forget. Don't forget, I pursued you, and ultimately, though I've chosen you and through you, a blessing is gonna come for the whole world. Our job in the meantime, where the people are here in December 520, if we're gonna identify with them, we have to come to that place where we stay humble as well. It was Andrew Murray who said, pride must die or nothing of heaven can live in you. Pride must die or nothing of heaven can live in you. And on Pentecost Sunday, we are reminded above every other day that there's a power we need that we don't have. Pentecost Sunday reminds us there is a power that you need, that I need, that we don't have if we're going to live the kind of life God has called us to live. So may we seek that and may we receive it, especially now as Pastor Ken comes and we prepare to receive Holy Communion.